A very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to the next in our online conversations. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Chancellor here at St Paul's Cathedral, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place. Our next conversation is with the very Reverend Andrew Nunn, who is the Dean of Southwark just over the river from us. And our conversation is about his book, The Hour is Come, The Passion in Real Time. And we explore the journey of Jesus from before Holy Week all the way through to Pentecost, thinking about the impact of who Jesus was and his incarnation, before spending some time reflecting on the events of Holy Week itself and thinking what they teach us about Jesus, about the world, about God and about ourselves. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Andrew. Andrew, it's great to be able to talk to you today and wonderful to be able to talk about your new book, which I absolutely loved. Um, one of the things you do in your book, which um, I thought was so clever, was to tell the story of the last week of Jesus's life and a few more stories as well, but focusing on the last week of Jesus's life in real time. So it felt like what you were trying to do was kind of bring the first century story into a 21st century way of doing things. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you decided to do that and what the challenges were when you uh, began doing it? Well, I can. I mean, what well, the reason really was, I suppose I'm a bit of a news junkie. And, uh, and I, I remember when I think it was the first Iraq war, when we really got um, coverage of an event in real time, so that we were constantly being bombarded with images coming across on these 24 hour news channels of what was happening. And it became an immersive experience, you know, a terrible experience, but an immersive experience. And I was, I was just kind of playing with the idea um, one uh, Lent and Holy Week as to what that would be like if the events of Holy Week and the Passion and everything uh, were to happen in, in our own context now. So that was the real sort of stimulus because I think that's how we, how we experience a lot of events um, happening. The challenge, of course, well, there were two things to say. One is that in in the gospels i think i don't know how you think about it paula but when you get to the passion accounts it's a different kind of writing there are some timings in there is what i began to notice so it would say at three o'clock or this stuff so i thought i wonder if i just go through the gospel accounts and try to set up a timeline now the challenge really was that um, I used to sit next to Geoffrey John in, um, in choir here in Southwark. And I remember he used to berate us every time Christmas came along about the abuse of scripture in relation to Christmas carol services like um, Nine Lessons and Carols, about how we kind of conflate all these things and imagine it's all one kind of story, but in fact there are all these you know, there, there are three different traditions and, you, you know, you, you can't you can't just say that um, Matthew and Luke and and uh, bits from elsewhere uh, can possibly be put in. So I've, I had Jeffrey's words in, and I thought, am I abusing scripture by doing this? So I want to apologise to any biblical scholars like you, Paula, um, for, for what I did in trying to do this. But I thought, well, you know, give it a go and uh, and see what the experience is like. 
And I thought it worked really well, and uh, no apology necessary for me. I'm the kind of biblical scholar that likes to do final readings of texts rather than um, kind of pulling them apart. So um, I just thought it worked really well. And there were a number of occasions as I was reading the book where I went, oh, yeah, of course that happened after that. Because mm. one of the really interesting things is, um, you know, we've got the big events pegged, haven't we, in our heads. So you've got you know, Palm Sunday, one end, Good Friday, Easter Day, the, the other end. Um, but there are some things that actually do happen through the story um, that do happen in each gospel one this one first then that one then that one and then recognizing those actually begins to give a kind of a a texture to the story that you don't get otherwise and I think that there was something about the um, those first three days you know so we we know a lot about Palm Sunday and we keep that well when we get to Holy Week um, and keeping it liturgically you get into this this strange time of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, and uh, you, you're kind of thinking, so what's going on? What's happening? Because there's been this massive event of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then it kind of goes quiet, except that, of course, in the Gospels, it doesn't go quiet because there is a, there are a lot of encounters going on. There's a lot of teaching that Jesus is doing. You know, if you if you look in Matthew's Gospel, there's a, there's a whole raft of of parables and, uh, and other bits that, that come through in that particular time. So I was also conscious that, that Jesus was backwards and forwards to Bethany. You know, so there he was lodging uh, in the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus over the hill. And so he was kind of commuting uh, very freely at this time. And then there was, a, there was a, a, a big story going on that sometimes we don't concentrate on. So that, that was one of the things that, uh, that really intrigued me, just to sort of think imaginatively about. Yeah, and I think that's what, for me, really works well, is that you've rooted it in the text and then entered it imaginatively. And um, I it made a massive difference to my reading of the text. And as you know, I read it a lot. So uh, therefore, you've done something really significant, I think, in being able to kind of shape that. But what I think, you know, and, and I... Uh, this is not about mutual admiration, but what what I think, I, you know, I really appreciate from some of the stuff that you've done. So thinking about um, Phoebe as well um, is is around allowing yourself to be immersed in the scriptures and to imagine something of the backstory of what's going on. And, you know, if you if you look at uh, uh, some of the Ignatian spiritual practices, that is exactly what you're encouraged to do, to, to place yourself into that experience and, and to have revealed to you through the spirit some things that you, you didn't know you knew almost. Uh, so, you know, that, I think that's a, it's a really valid and important way of approaching the scriptures in a, in a different way from, from merely kind of, when merely is hardly the right word, studying them. Um, in that sense and trying to get behind the Greek and this, that and the other, is actually using it as part of your imaginative response to, to scripture. There's a lovely thing that you say in the introduction to your book, um, which I'm just going to read because it's so, it's so um, well phrased. You say, 
As I get older, I find the historical Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, the God who enters real time, becomes more important to me. The concept of the God who enters our time thrills me and fires my spirit. It's really beautifully said. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about why the incarnate Jesus um, thrills you and fires your spirit? Yes, um, I suppose coming to Southwark Cathedral has been a really important part of my life and my own spiritual journey. And uh, there is something um, very earthy about being here. We're, we're not set in any glorious uh, lawns or a, a great chapter or um, have a great close, cathedral close. Um, we're in between a, a river and a railway line with a, with a market, with all of its noise and fuss and bother. And I always think there is something very incarnational about the place and about our location. And that feeds through into the ministry that we have from here. It's really important that we're kind of grounded. So just reflecting on where I am and, and the kind of ministry that I've been involved in has then made me reflect theologically on how I understand the incarnation. And so, uh, yeah, to, to me, Engaging with um, the Jesus who, who stands alongside us actually does fire my spirit in, a, in quite a strong way. So I, if you look at, if, you know, what I say, if I look at what I say in my sermons, it's very much around all of that. And I do think that people need to have a strong sense that uh, God is with them in all of this. Uh, there's a, a poem by R.S. Thomas uh, where, where the father and the son are looking down at the world and um, Jesus asks to be sent into this, into the mess of it. And, and that for me is, is the great gift of the incarnation that, that God stands alongside us in, in the messiness as well as in all the joyfulness of life. So it, it's, it's grown, developed, you know, after, over all these years that I've been in this place to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and I think there is something, I mean, I love that R.S. Thomas poem, and there's something really beautiful about the ending of it, where Jesus, you know, you have all of this kind of the world and its awfulness, and Jesus says, let me go there. Let me go um, there. It's just, it's fabulous. And there is something, I think, about that, um, looking at the grim reality of life and God still choosing to come and be with us here and knowing that God chooses to do it now. Um, yes, and, and you know also the um, that it it happens into you know the wonderfulness of the birth and the the nativity and 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 all of that you know so it's it's not just the grim aspects of life that God enters into you know and, and often we you know we're forced I think as as ministers to address some of the really difficult stuff uh, that happens around us to try and speak into that and make sense of some of it and of course. There's a lot of that in when we get to Holy Week and the Passion, um, and we see a lot of our own story uh, reflected in what happens to Jesus. But I also think we're we're here to celebrate the good things. You know, we're here to celebrate the Cana um, events of, of life as much as as the grim reality of the cross, and and the incarnation is is in all of that. You know, so that the the absolute joy of the shepherds 
is is something that I I want to engage with as much as I want to engage with the sorrowing women stood at the foot of the cross, if you know what I mean. And you mention in your book that um, for you the story of the cross starts at the crib. And there's, I think this, that's where you're kind of pushing there, aren't you? As you're saying that actually what we're talking about in Passion Tide is the whole of Jesus's life. We're not just looking at this bit. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I, I, I think that uh, it's wrong to divorce any, any aspect of um, Jesus' life and ministry um, and the Gospels from, from the rest of the context. There is um, a great painting, um, I think it's by Millet, uh, of um, Christ in the home of his parents and he's in, he's in, the, in the workshop of, of Joseph. And of course, in that wonderful pre-Raphaelite kind of way, there's all the kind of instruments of the passion and a bit of wood, you know, two bits of wood crossed over in the background looking a bit like a cross. Uh, and it's, it's to remind us of, of that basic fact, you know, that there, there is a journey from, from, the, um, from the crib to the cross that we, we kind of want to begin to engage with as Christians. So that the, the good news is told, told through the whole story of a life um, lived um, among us. So yeah, I do. I do find, you know, because I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big passion type person. I'm also a big Christmas person. I, I love both kind of ends of, of the story. And so, in my own spirituality and from my, my own understanding, I, I want to sort of begin there uh, rather than sort of just dive in uh, at Palm Sunday and and think that I can separate that out. And um. I think it happens to all of us, doesn't it, um, in Holy Week, where, you know, you get to Palm Sunday and you go, oh, Palm Sunday again, absolutely fabulous. And then you've blinked and it's Easter Day. And it feels as though that kind of the journey through Holy Week can be quite hard to, to maintain. Do you have any tips of what you do during Holy Week to be able to centre you day by day? And in, as I say, in a way, it feels as though what you're doing here in the book is bringing us right down to each moment of Holy Week to anchor us down. Um, are yeah. there things that you do, as well as kind of reflecting on the stories, are there things that you do personally in your spiritual life that helps you to anchor through Holy Week and you can get more out of it? Uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I, I've, I've stood like a lot of clergy at um, a lectern each Palm Sunday, you know, after, after the liturgy during the notices and, and done that kind of slightly telling off kind of business that clergy can sometimes do. Maybe readers can do it as well, Paula. Um, and uh, I've sort of said, now look, I don't want you just to come next on Easter Day because you're going to miss out on the whole of the story. We've just begun it. There's, there's loads more and you're not going to really get the best out of Easter unless you've made the journey. And, uh, and of course, some people listen and some people don't. Um, but that's, that's the way with these things. Now, for me, what became so essential in my own practice of traveling the Holy Week journey has came from when I was, was a child in the church where I went, where they kept uh, a full Holy Week to kind of use that phrase. And then I went to train at Murfield um, at the College of the Resurrection, where um, as students, we, we had to be there uh, during Holy Week um, because the community all went out to lead Holy Weeks in parishes. And we became, as it were, the community of the resurrection. 
um, even to in those days sitting in the in the stalls that the uh, brethren would normally sit in. And we did keep a very, very full Holy Week. So it was exhausting. It was exhausting physically and it was exhausting spiritually. And it meant a lot of services, a lot of special services, um, the, the ordinary services bumped up with some amazing music. So I'm, I mean, I'm a great church goer. That's, uh, that's why you know, I like, you know, I love going to church. Um, and, and so for me, Holy Week is about being in community. And I do like to immerse myself in the liturgy because I think the liturgy is a, is a way of um, bringing the, the past into the present for the sake of the future. Um, and uh, so, you know, apart from keeping more silence and making my confession and doing all those kinds of things, I do really enjoy it when we get a good Holy Week preacher who comes along and does some reflective um, addresses that I can engage with, where I can, you know, keep Compline going during the week. And also really then, uh, when it, the Triduum comes along, the, the great three days, going to everything and, and making sure I'm at everything and taking advantage of, of that rich history um, that we have within, within the Christian tradition. So I, I write in, in the book, um, I mention Nigeria, who uh, was this uh, a woman, might have been a religious uh, in the early part of the history of the church, coming across on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, she she basically went everywhere. Um, she went up Mount Sinai, but she, she ended up in uh, Jerusalem. She ended up there uh, for Holy Week. And it's her journal, really, that helps us understand how the Christian community in Jerusalem kept Holy Week, things like Palm Sunday. And when you read Egeria's uh, um, journal, a pilgrim diary, like many pilgrims would keep nowadays, when you read that, you suddenly think, okay, so we've been doing this Palm Sunday procession like this for generations and generations and generations. And we've been keeping the vigil like this for generations and generations and generations. So when we really enter into Holy Week, we're really entering into a whole stream of the way in which our sisters and brothers over the centuries have tried to engage with what happened to Jesus at a moment in real time, but in a way that then encompasses all time. So for me, the, the liturgy becomes um, absolutely central as it's been for the, for the whole church. And is there a moment or is there a story in Holy Week that hits you more than any other that kind of gives you that kind of visceral sense of connection or is it the whole story that grabs you well um when i look down the rotor and see what i've been given to preside at there are there are two things and i you know i'm speaking now from the privileged position of being a priest um and so there are two things one is if I'm down on the road to, uh, to preside at the, uh, the evening celebration of the Lord's Supper, as it's called, on Monday Thursday, I know that I have that ultimate privilege of washing feet. And uh, one of the sadnesses of, many sadnesses of COVID has been unable to kind of touch and do that, that the physical, 
there is something absolutely incredible about being able to take off the vestments, tie on a towel, take the bowl, and go and kneel in front of people who I know very well. And for them to submit to me in a sense, I mean, it's very intimate, washing somebody's feet and, and allowing somebody to wash your feet is, is a hugely generous act for those who, who, who do that. So it kind of all, it, you know, the, the past comes into the present in a really powerful way, I think, when, when I'm doing that. And the other, the other of course, is um, on Good Friday. So if I see that I'm down to preside at the liturgy of the day, I know that I will be there holding a huge cross at the front of the cathedral. And there will be a massive number of people coming forward just to venerate the cross in their own way. And some will, you know, genuflect and kiss it and do all, all of that. Some people will come along and simply bow and spend a moment there. And because of how, you know, we're, I'm facing them, I can see them as they're looking at the cross, as they're responding to the cross. And there is a huge intimacy um, at that moment and that, that, that people want to just draw near the cross and we're, we're able to facilitate that in a way. So it's, it's those two moments really uh, that, that sort of stand out for me. It's a, it's a bit like, I have to say, um, you know, it's a bit more than you've asked for, Paula, but one of the incredible things, and you've probably experienced this yourself, is being able to give people the sacrament, Holy Communion, and to see a row of empty hands in front of you, or a line of empty hands, and to place the host in the hands. As a minister, uh, there, is, there is nothing more uh, of a privilege than, than that. Because you, you know, you're dealing with that, the, the physicality of sacraments, the intimacy of, of presence, the understanding of what it is that we're doing. And, and people come with all their need, desire, hunger to be fed. And, and here we are ministering in God's name to people at these moments, like the foot washing, like the veneration, and like every every communion. Yes, I absolutely agree, Andrew. And there's something just so beautiful, isn't there, when you administer the sacraments. And it does feel as though um, there is nothing to do with you and yet you are introducing people into the very presence of God by administering the sacraments. And there is something, you can't put words into how amazing the experience is um, to be able to, and the privilege of being able to do that. And I think, you know, given that you're in, uh, just across the river from, from where I am, but we're, we're often dealing with people we don't know. You know, you have a lot of people who you will probably never see again and yet share that most intimate moment with them. And, and they, they come along um, and they go. And yet you've ministered to them in, in such a profound way. And, and it is beautiful, just as you've said. Mm -hmm. Now, you were talking a moment ago about the veneration of the cross. So I think we need to venture into our first impossible question of the day, which is, what do you think happened on the cross? Yeah, I, I struggle more and more, I think, 
to actually answer that question. I, I suppose when, uh, you know, when you're going through your formation, your Christian formation, uh, what, whatever kind of level that is, whether, whether you're going through confirmation classes or, or being formed for some kind of um, authorised ministry or ordination, um, you've got some, some kind of ideas of, of what this fundamental question is. Uh, what on earth is happening on the cross and why was it necessary uh, for Jesus to die? And, and, and can I sing, there is a green hill far away with any sense of integrity or theological integrity? Um, and I, I suppose at moments I've been, I've been more certain about that. As I've got older, I'm, I have to admit that I'm, I'm less certain of what I think was happening. What I, what I do know, because I've, I've, I feel as though I'm in a kind of a place where I, I want to respond sometimes more with my heart than with my head. And for those who don't like that kind of approach, I apologise. But I mean, this is for me, when I look at the cross, this is the supreme act of love uh, for humanity that God uh, has. I mean, given that we've, we've got this gift of God's son, the one who, who wants to come uh, to be with us, and, and here, lifted up, drawing the whole world uh, to himself, is my saviour. And I don't know whether there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin, uh, whether that makes any sense theologically. I, I you know, the, all the... All the kind of uh, understanding of the atonement that's around and you you know you can spend your life reading reading books on the atonement and people's um, understanding of all of that and, and why it was necessary for god to be paid off in this kind of way and I'm, I'm sort of not really interested in that as much now at this stage of my life as to to look there and say so this is how much god loves me that God is willing to go through this. God in Jesus is willing to go through this. God is, God is willing to be the victim, to, to set aside all power and all glory for this, uh, for this moment of extreme humiliation um, so that I may live. So that's really um, my not very good answer, Paula, to your um, <laughs> important question. But, you know, the, the church needs to constantly ask itself these questions. And uh, there are people around who will come up with, you know, good, solid answers about it um, more, than, more, more than I might do. But at the same time, I think that the church needs to help people. And, and that's all parts of the church. It doesn't really matter what brand you place on yourself. We, we I, want people to engage with the things of God, with the divine, with Jesus, to know Jesus personally, um, to know to know the love of God personally for them, to know that um, in Desmond Tutu's wonderful words when he preached here at Southwark um, some years ago, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. And to know that the first of those is embodied in what I find on the cross on Good Friday. This is the so much more that God does for me than I ever 
can deserve. And um, as a biblical scholar, I, I entirely agree with that view, really, because I think what the, the, the gospel writers in particular are trying to do is to draw you into the story and to help you see some of the mystery of what's going on in the cross. And they come up with their different strands, but nevertheless, you still have that right at the centre was a Jesus who, who loved us so much, he died. Um, and that, that seems to be enough. I've, for me, it's always been enough. Of course, Paul tried to put a lot more theology around it. Yeah. Um, but even Paul, really interestingly, never says one thing. This is my reading of Paul. Others would disagree with me. But my understanding of Paul is that Paul says, well, it was a little bit like this and a little bit like that. And he brings out lots of different images of what the cross did. And, and again, I find that reassuring, really. Yeah, don't you think that's always the case, though, when, when you're dealing with mystery? You know, the, the, the whole of faith to me is more like a diamond than anything else. And you constantly need to turn it around and see the different facets. And you, you can never entirely describe uh, a beautifully cut diamond uh, because there's always more to see. And you can look in, into the centre of it and see, see even more. And so to, to suggest, as some people suggest, that they've got the answer, I think, I think is... is uh, Try, diminishes God really, diminishes God's actions and diminishes what we really mean by mystery. It's not that mystery isn't the fact that Andrew Nunn doesn't have a good answer for it. it the mystery is that it's, it's bigger than our capacity to really begin to describe it. So in the end, we have to live it. Yeah. Yep. I absolutely agree. And it's kind of not wanting to be derogatory in any way, but if it were a mystery that Andrew Nunn could give a good answer to, then it wouldn't be that great a mystery. No. It would be somehow less satisfying. Yeah, That's, which, is, which is why I, I like, you know, I, I love being an Anglican because I, I feel that I'm allowed to approach things from a variety of directions. So the fact that, um, you know, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Mass, uh, or we've got so many different ways of describing it, celebrating it, understanding it. I mean, it's it just, it enriches it for me. Our, tra our tradition is so rich, drawing from both Reformation theology and ecclesiology and, and sacramental theology, all of that, as well as from our Catholic roots. And we bring all that together into the most wonderful mix, which I think if we can stop sometimes arguing about it, and stand back and say, look at the gift we've been given. Look at the gift in the theology that we've been given, in the biblical understanding. Uh, and, and start seeing our life coming out of that, that rich ground, rather than trying to impoverish it, I think, by overdefining. We're used during Holy Week to talking about Monday Thursday and Good Friday. And then often what we do is we kind of zip through to Easter Day and miss out Holy Saturday. But it's very clear from your book that Holy Saturday is really important to you. Can you tell us why Holy Saturday is so important within your tradition um, and within your spirituality? Um, and why do we call it holy is probably the place to begin, isn't it? Yes, well, holy, I think, uh, because... Uh, there was still holy things going on. Um, so there were, you know, um, there is a tradition about 
the harrowing of hell and all of that. I mean, I do find uh, the the whole chronology and the three days and the fact that you so you can whiz through from Good Friday uh, to to Easter Day. It doesn't feel like three days really, but uh, set that to one side. Uh, that makes for me Holy Saturday um, even more important because there is no other day like it within the church. So, for instance, Holy Saturday you don't celebrate the Eucharist. Now, people uh, from the tradition that I've been brought up in, uh, you know, will probably go to daily mass. The fact that you can't on Holy Saturday, and yet we call it holy, is really, really important. And trying to live that pause, trying to live that silence, trying to inhabit the, the kind of not knowingness, the, um, the the one who descended into hell, which is what we say in, in our creedal statements, um, that he descends into hell. Trying to work out what that means in your keep keeping of Holy Week, I think is really important. Now, you know, I was just celebrating uh, the, the Church of England and, and I, you know, I celebrate it a lot. One of the things we do in the Church of England, though, with Holy Saturday, is fill it with dusting, cleaning, wiping down, getting the people who are going to arrange the flowers in, getting the church ready for Easter, which I know you have to do. But everybody's kind of really busy. You know, you've got piles and piles of hot cross buns in the vestry. And, you know, it's it's anything but quiet. And, and you almost need a rotor in a parish to say who's going to be able to keep Holy Week, uh, sorry, Holy Saturday, as Holy Saturday should be kept. Because otherwise, I think you miss out on the riches of, of contemplating um, our own uh, mortality, burial, uh, for, that, for that waiting. Um, you know, it, it may all happen in the twinkling of an eye, but there is a reality to the pause. Uh, so I, that's why I think it's, it's an important stage on the journey. It was an important stage on the journey for Jesus. And I think we, we, we lose it and we lose something really, really rich and, and powerful in all of that. Yeah, no, it, it, it was only a few years ago that I really clocked the importance of Holy Saturday and that kind of slight, the not being quite sure what to do on Holy Saturday is absolutely the right feeling, isn't it? That you, yeah. you're meant to be just a little bit restless and there seems to be not a lot of point to most of the things that you do. And that, and must, that seems to be the heart of it. And it must have been so difficult for the, the, the disciples, mm -hmm. you know, because... We, we know from our own experience, those of us who have suffered bereavement, know that there's a lot to do when someone's died. And the activity, really, of getting in touch with the funeral director and the vicar and uh, talking and ringing around your various friends and sort of sharing the news and all of that, that's part of the way in which we cope with our bereavement. Of course, it was the Sabbath. And so, of course... And, and they were also in fear. So, you know, John would lead us to understand. They were in this locked in space. They were together in this room um, and they weren't able to do anything, which is why as soon as the soon as they the kind of the shutters were lifted, as it were, the women were off to get on with the task, which would help them to come to terms with what had happened to Jesus. So for them, Holy Saturday, that Saturday, that Sabbath, was enormously significant. 
because all they could do was sit there in their grief. And, and I don't think we often imagine that as much as we should. No, absolutely. But then, of course, comes Easter Sunday and the resurrection. And uh, one of the many, many things I love about your book is that you don't stop. A lot of Lent books go, OK, right, end of Holy Saturday, all done, no more. But you go on and you go on as far as Pentecost. Why did you do that? I did that because, um, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite easy to, to sort of just finish the whole thing with Easter and think that's, that's where it concludes. Of course, uh, it doesn't because there's a, a lot going on um, as the disciples are becoming, beginning to come to terms with the implications of what has happened and then the, the implications of the appearances uh, of Jesus to them. And, and so I wanted to give people a sense of the, of the breadth of the kind of ripple effect, if you like, so that the, the events of Holy Week are the, are the stone thrown into the pond. And then the rippling out of that is what we experience all the way to Pentecost, and then all the way to us now here talking about it, you know, all these, all these years later on. So that the, the rippling effects of the events of Holy Week are to be felt on, in Pentecost. So I didn't want to kind of lose the opportunity mm -hmm. to do a bit of reflection on that, as well as the ascension, as well as on the as on some of the appearances. So, um, yeah, that's that's the why I did it, Paula. Mm -hmm. Yep, no, and I absolutely agree with you. There's something about the way in which the story, um, it's it, it comes to a big climax and then it comes to the next big climax in the resurrection and then in the ascension and then at Pentecost. And if you miss any one of those, then you miss something really vital about the whole story, don't you? Absolutely. And then it, then it comes to a climax again, you know, as, as you are baptised and confirmed. Mm -hmm. And as you make your communion, you know, we, we live in all of these constant ripplings out and the climaxes, as you describe it, of, of actually what what our life is like um, living alongside um, our crucified, risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. So if you could pick out one thing from the resurrection that was crucial for you and your faith, what would it be? It has to be the story uh, that Luke tells about the road to Emmaus. Um, I love, I love it if I can get the opportunity to lead a retreat or something like that, and and take the Emmaus story um, as the basis for it, because it's it's you can read it again and again and again. It's wonderful to be able to enter into it imaginatively. Um, it's wonderful to be able to see um, all of the signs of how we celebrate the Eucharist every time we come together. Because the, the story of the journey to Emmaus is really the story of our own journey. Every time we come to church, every time uh, the, the word is broken for us, as, as, as the scriptures are explained, every time the bread is broken for us, every time we're then sent back out uh, with good news. The whole shape of the story is the shape of, of our Christian life, really. So it's, it's, a, it's a story of, 
of deep richness, but and the way that it ends um, just thrills my heart and how they recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And, uh, you know, that that for me is at the heart of my own uh, faith and practice to recognize Jesus there uh, with us whenever whenever we break bread and and share in that uh, sacred meal uh, to, to know the presence of Jesus with us on the road that we're traveling, to know the presence of Jesus in our companions and to know the presence of Jesus every time we open the scriptures and read the gospels and um, hear him speaking to us again in our own real time. You know, I love that detail, you know, when they're dragging themselves to Emmaus and the kind of the story, you imagine they're almost not going to get there. They're so miserable. And then they recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread and they go, oh, we'll just run back to Jerusalem. <laughs> Off we <Yeah>. go. <laughs> and the, the change of the energy and the dynamic is so amazing in the story, isn't it? And the way that they realize um, were not our hearts burning within yeah. us. You know, and the, the, the pair of them, I always imagine, I, I think I think you've written about this as well, you, you know, that uh, that they're actually the couple, a couple sort of, yeah. who are, so that, uh, you know, they, they will have talked, weren't our hearts burning within yeah. us? They suddenly remembered what it felt like when God touches your heart. Yeah. That was wonderful, yes. So let's move on to the Ascension. And the Ascension is one of those great conundrums in a way, isn't it? That um, you, the story is of Jesus rising up from earth and going back to heaven. And it, it makes sense in a world which um, believes that if you go upwards, you get to heaven. But you can get really distracted by the directions um, and miss the point. What for you would be the point of the res of sorry not the resurrection we've done that already the ascension what's the point of the ascension uh, well uh, for me the point of the ascension is that um, pentecost can't happen uh without the ascension so uh that we need there needs to be space as it were uh for the gift of the holy spirit uh, but i i do find it a very very difficult uh feast i think um I mean, some of the some of the visualizations that we've got in church do not help. And uh, you've just been speaking about that sense of, you know, up, up must mean heaven. Um, and there's, there's that amazing um, altar at the shrine in Walsingham, uh, where the, the sort of tester above the altar has two feet dangling down, um, just to sort of remind us of Jesus going. And I think this is utterly bizarre and I can't, I can't see that it happened quite like that. But there was, uh, you know, I want, I want to believe that there was this kind of moment when those resurrection appearances in that form came to an end. And there was this hunger and waiting time and expectation between uh, Jesus not being with them as he'd been with them before and then the church being born out of the gift of the Holy Spirit. So then there needed to be that, that transitional time and that waiting time, uh, which is such a, a kind of pregnant with possibility time. Uh, so, so, you know, very, very, very good waiting. There was um, a lovely book by uh, Bill Banston quite a few years ago now called The Stature of Waiting, when he, he talks about both the, 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 the waiting that Jesus does during Holy Week, but also the way in which waiting 
is a good thing. Um, not like when you're waiting for a bus, but when you're waiting in expectation for something to happen. So I think, it, you know, the Ascension gives us that possibility of waiting. It's a real, real gift, uh, which I value. So, I'm, you know, I'm not bothered about the, the feet dangling from the top of the uh, tester above the altar. I am really bothered about really getting to grips with the waiting and the wanting. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think the the directional stuff is just distracting in a way to us, isn't it? Mm. And um, they had to find a way to say that he really was gone this time. I'm often reminded of John, you know, where Jesus says, in a little while you'll see me and then you won't see me and then you will see me and then you won't see me. And it feels as though with the ascension, they're saying, OK, right, now he's really gone. And they needed to find a way to say, now he's really gone. And the the detail in the story that I utterly love about Pentecost on the back of Ascension is that you've got Mary at the in the middle of the disciples praying and waiting with them and I know Mary is very important part of your devotion um just talk to us a little bit about Mary and Pentecost and the waiting and the waiting for the spirit yes I I've been brought up uh in a tradition that uh has a, a huge place for Mary. Um, there's a wonderful mosaic in the Church of the Dormition on Mount Zion in, Jer in Jerusalem. And there, the 11 apostles um, are depicted uh, with Mary sat at the center. And it's the gathered church the gathered church at prayer, and I think it's a really powerful image. And the fact that that she was there, having gone through all of this, and yet was in that place where she could be still and pray and and be there as somebody who would who would help to hold things together. So when I'm when I'm saying my prayers and lighting my candles, um, you know, I'm wanting Mary to to join her prayers with mine in the way that she joined her prayers with those of the disciples um, in the upper room. So, yeah, beautiful moment. That feels like a really great place to stop remembering Mary and joining our prayers with hers, with the rest of the disciples. So, Andrew, thank you so much. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Paula.